So last week, really depressing chapter, uh, chapter four is the beginning of the judgment of Eli's family. Eli's the priest and he's not great. And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are worse than him. And God has announced previously that there'll be judgment on their family. And we saw the beginning of that last week in chapter four. Hophni and Phinehas go into a battle with the Philistines and they're killed. The ark is captured. The ark is the, the, it's considered the throne of God on earth. It's this very holy object. It's only the high priest can see it. Only once a year, God speaks to the high priest from where those two angels' wings connect. It's a, again, it's considered the throne of God on earth. It's captured. The ark, Eli hears about the ark being captured. He falls over in his chair and breaks his neck and he dies. His daughter-in-law hears that the ark has been captured, that her father-in-law has died, that her husband has died. She goes into childbirth early. She dies and she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed again. It's a altogether pretty negative chapter. It's God judging this priestly family for their uh, dereliction of duty, their corruption in terms of how they were leading the people in worship. And so we're going to pick up in chapter five this morning. And again, just in your mind, the setting, 34,000 Israelite men have died in battle uh, very recently over the last uh, two battles with the Philistines, which are pretty close together. Uh, Time-wise, 34,000 men have died. Everybody's gone home. They're not fighting anymore. The ark has been captured, first time in history, and the leading spiritual family in the nation is wiped out. So the guys who are attending the temple who are, or the tabernacle, who are the ones who are regulating worship for the people, they're all dead. And so uh, it's, it's not a great situation for the Israelites at this time, and we'll see kind of what God does in the midst of that mess. So chapter 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer, so that's where the battle was, to Ashdod. That's one of their major cities. There's five major cities in Philistia. Ashdod is one of them. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple, and they set it beside Dagon. That was their god. When the people of Ashdod Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. We don't know what those were. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. That's another one of their major cities. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they'd moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron, another one of their major cities. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors. And the outcry of the city went up to heaven. 
So you have the picture there. The Israel, the Philistines win in the battle. And the idea then in that day and time was if my country, my nation beat your nation, then my God is stronger than your God. So they capture the ark, this symbol of God's presence, and they bring it back to one of their major cities and put it in the, in the temple of their God, Dagon there, the God of uh, one of the gods of the Philistines. The idea of, well, Dagon was stronger than Yahweh because the Philistines beat the Israelites. So now Yahweh is in Dagon's temple to serve him. And they go in the next day and Dagon's laying on his face, a posture of worship before the ark. And you see the impotence of an idol can't even get up out of the ground. The people have to pick him up and put him back upright. They go in the next day and his head and his hands have been broken off. And again, he's lying in a posture of submission and worship before the ark. It was not uncommon during battle. This is grisly, but uh, to cut off the right hand or the head of the people that you killed. It's the way you kept up with body count. And so that's what you see here. Is you, it's, a, it's a military metaphor. On the battlefield, the Philistines defeated the Israelites. But that doesn't mean their God was stronger than theirs, than the Israelite God. It doesn't mean Dagon was stronger than Yahweh. And so his head's broken off. His hands are broken off. Again, that's a picture of what a victorious army would do to an army that they defeated in battle. And so that's the idea behind that. Oh, there's a picture of Dagon. He was, they call it, he was a fish god of some sort or another. And so the, the Philistines at that point, it's not just what's going on in the temple, which would be strange, but everyone in the city is starting to get tumors. Again, we don't know what those tumors were. We just, they were getting tumors and they attributed it to the ark. They attributed it to the presence of God, of Yahweh in their city. And they said, we don't, we're done. Send it on to another city. And so they send it to another city. The exact same thing happens in that town. The second major city of the Philistines. Tumors break out, young and old. They're tired of it. Send it on. Send the ark on to someone else. And so as they send it to the third city, Ekron, they're going, we don't want it. We know what's happened. We're not interested. And as the ark enters their city, again, people have tumors. There are people dying and they're They're trying to figure out what do we do with this ark of God. It's this great reversal. It's almost like there's this victory parade. The ark of God is going from city to city to city, but it's a bit of a reverse. The God who is supposed to be defeated, Yahweh, is actually demonstrating his power and his sovereignty among the Philistines. And they can't get rid of the ark Fast enough. Chapter six. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats. That's what everybody wants. According to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Remember, there's five cities. Each city has its own king. And so they're saying there's there's because there's five of those rulers sent back five of each of those things. Make the models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country. And give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. 
Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then get a new cart ready with two cows that have calves and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it. Put the gold objects you're sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and pinned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord in the cart and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them, excuse me, the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So you got a picture there. So the 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 Philistines are saying we're, we, we don't want the ark anymore. How do we get how do we send it back? Which is a big deal for them, because remember, the fact that they have the ark is a symbol of their victory over the Israelites. Their God is stronger than Israel's God to send back the ark is to say, never mind, your God is stronger. It's to say, Yahweh, your God is stronger than our God. And even their holy people say that perhaps God will lift his hand off of us, off of our land and off of our people. They recognize their gods are powerless in the face of what Yahweh is doing. And so their magic men, their, their holy men have this idea. They say, OK, here's what we're going to do. We don't send the ark back empty handed. We've all got tumors. And so let's send gold replicas of those tumors, whatever that would look like, back to Israel. In addition, let's also send five golden rats. Some people say that there was an infestation of rats during this time, and that's how the tumor spread. Others would say it was just a gift that they were giving God. We don't know. There's not necessarily an indication that there, there were rats spreading these tumors. But either way, that's what they send back as a gift. Five golden tumors, five golden rats. Get two cows. So these are not bulls. Get two cows. Hitch them up. So these are cows that have never worked. They've never been yoked together. So they've never worked individually and they've never worked as a pair. And they're new mothers. So pin up their calves Hitch them to this wagon, and if it walks the twelve, if they walk the twelve miles from our city to Beth Shemesh, then we'll know God's the one who is afflicting us. If not, it's just a coincidence, just a really big coincidence that in every city where the ark was, everybody got tumors. So that's what they do. They find two cows that have never worked. They yoke them together. They pin up their calves. They point them in the right direction, and these guys walk. These cows walk twelve miles uh, to this Israelite city. And then the, the Philistines recognize, you know what? It was God's hand that was upon us. What happens when the ark gets to Beth Shemesh? Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. When they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the Ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. 
These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each, for these are their five cities, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained there a long time. 20 years in all until David goes and gets it. So the ark goes to this town, Beth Shemesh. It was actually a Levitical town. So the tribe of Levi didn't get land. Their inheritance was the Lord. They didn't get a plot of land like all of the other tribes of Israel. But they did get cities that were located throughout Israelite territory. One of them being Beth Shemesh. And there were three divisions of Levites. The division that was in this town were called the Kohathites, and their job, historically, was to take care of the ark. Interesting that that's where the ark goes, isn't it? So this town, the the people of this town, their heritage, their inheritance from the Lord was to take care of the ark and to take care of its contents. And so the ark, pulled by these two cows, shows up in their town. And there's a bit of a mixed reaction. You see a lot of joy, celebration, this spontaneous act of worship, and you also see this deep irreverence for the ark. And these are guys who should know better. These are guys who, from generation to generation, it would have been passed down to them the rules and regulations for taking care of the ark. Again, that was their job. When the ark was to be moved from point A to point B, these guys, they were the ones that did it. They knew the rules. The ark was not even supposed to be looked at except one guy, the high priest, once a year on Yom. Kippur. He could go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled blood on the ark to make atonement for the people. That's it. When the ark was moved, it was covered under layers and layers of material. You couldn't even touch it. That's why it had those poles that we looked at. There's a picture up there. There are those poles that uh, come through the ark. And so you weren't even allowed to grab the ark itself. You grabbed those poles. And again, only certain Levites, these guys actually, the Kohathites, could, could touch those poles. Nobody could touch the ark. And definitely nobody could look inside. Nobody could do that. And these guys know better. So there's a lot of joy. This, again, this kind of spontaneous worship because the ark is back. And then there's this deep irreverence peeking inside of it. And so 70 of the guys die. God strikes them down. And notice the response of these Israelites. Now remember, these are the guys who were charged with taking care of the ark. This was their heritage. This was their assignment. And their response is exactly like the response of the Philistines. Where do we send it? We don't want it anymore. These are God's people, people who were, again, given the responsibility of taking care of the ark. They treat the ark uh, casually, irreverently. God responds, and they, they don't repent they don't they don't say God what they, they don't question. They just say, God, get rid of 
We don't want it anymore. They say to their town leaders, we don't want it. Where can we send it? How do we get rid of this thing? Exact same response that you see in the Philistines that shows the depth of uh, straying, the depth of of the, the distance between the Israelites and God at that point, how far they had fallen in their relationship with him, that they respond just like a pagan nation that doesn't know God at all. Their response to God's judgment, it's not repentance. It's not contrition. It's not to ask for forgiveness. It's to say, get, a, get away. How do we hot potato? How do we get rid of this? As quickly as they can. And so they send the ark off to another city where it remains for 20 years until David gets the ark and brings it back to Jerusalem. So I was reading that. A couple of things jumped out at me. One is you see God protecting his own reputation. Almost every time in the Bible that God acts, he acts through a person. Almost every time. The plagues were mentioned in our uh, chapter. God works through Moses. He works through Aaron. Moses has a staff. There's this human agency or human instrumentality. Almost every time you see God work in the Bible, you see him working through a human. Someone to explain, here's what's happening. Or someone does something. They they have a staff. Or they, Elijah works eight miracles. And Elijah works 16. And and every one of those, they they do something. They throw salt in a pot or an anvil into a, a river. They do something. They lay down on someone who's dead and they come back to life. There's, there's a... Again, there's an agency or an instrumentality. You don't see that here. God works on his own. He just takes it on his, upon himself. In the Philistine territory, he destroys their God. And then he gives everybody tumors in the cities where the ark goes. And there, there's no people involved at all. In Beth Shemesh, this Israelite town, they look in the ark and they die. No human instrumentality at all. God working directly. To defend his reputation. To the Philistines, he's showing his power and his sovereignty. To the Israelites, he's reminding them of his holiness. At this point in time, Israel is a poor, poor reflection of God's character. They're they're not good representatives of God's character or his values on the earth. God chose Israel, one nation from all the nations on the earth. And he did. They're his chosen people. And part of their assignment was to be a blessing to the nations. That was one of the reasons God chose them, was so that the nations could see, look what happens when a country submitted to God. Look what happens when a country follows and obeys the Lord. This is what it looks like. And that that would draw other countries into worship of him. They all had their own national deities. And one of the reasons God chose just one Israel was to show, this is, this is what it looks like to serve and worship this God. This is what it looks like to honor and follow him. Israel, for at least the 300 years during the time of Judges, has been in this steady decline of sin and rebellion. They're terrible representatives at this point of what God values and of who God is. And so God steps in and wants to let everybody know. He can't work through, at this point, he chooses not to work through Israel because there's, they're, they're, not, they're not honoring, they're not following even this, this Levitical town that should know what to do with the ark. They don't do anything right. Nothing. They put the ark up on a rock on display. Nobody's supposed to look at it. They don't have they, Everything that they're doing runs counter to the way God has told them to treat the ark. And so God steps in to the Philistines. He reminds them 
or demonstrates to them his power. You may have beat the Israelites on the battlefield, but that doesn't mean your God's stronger than me at all. I'm doing something else. And so their God is toppled literally before Yahweh and people get tumors that their God can't heal. To the Israelites in Beth Shemesh, when they peek in the ark irreverently and they are struck down, God is reminding them, I'm holy. I'm, 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 there's a purity in me. I'm 100% good and 0% evil. You can't approach me this way irreverently. That's why, there's a, a, that's why we've got these, this protocol for what it looks like to worship at this point in time. And they don't get it. And again, so we see God dealing directly. And I've wondered in my own life, I've thought, so if the Israelites, if they're supposed to be representatives of what God's values and, and what his character is like, well, I'm supposed to be the same thing now. Second Corinthians 5.20 says we're ambassadors of Christ. Romans 8.29 says God, does, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So without guilt, because you can definitely get into a hole on this, I just wonder, when I look at my life or when you look at yours, if there was someone who'd never read the Bible, never been in church, never heard the name of Jesus, if they knew that I was following him, what would they assume about his character? What conclusions would they draw about his values based on the way I live my life? If I were to say, I'm following him. So for the Philistines, if they were to look at the Israelites and draw conclusions about Yahweh, they wouldn't get anything right. Because of the Israelites' life at that point, because of the way they worshipped and because of the life they lived, if the the Philistines were to say, okay, I'm going to figure out who God is by looking at y'all, his chosen people, they're going to come up wrong every time. Every time. Because the Israelites' lives were a wreck. And so I think about that for me. Again, not guilt at all. There's always places where we can grow for sure. But if somebody who doesn't know Jesus, never read the Bible, never been in church, if they were to say to me, hey, you follow him, and I want to draw conclusions about the things that he values, or I want to draw conclusions about his character based on what I see in you, would any of their conclusions be correct? Now, for all of us, some of them would. None of, none of us are batting zero. There are things, areas of your life and my life where we do reflect well on the Lord, where we are living out the values of the kingdom. And obviously there are places for all of us to grow, just like none of us are batting zero, none of us are batting a thousand either. There's growth for us. But I was thinking specifically about the two attributes that God grabs onto in this passage, just to narrow it down and to keep you out of the morass of guilt. Power and holiness. If someone were to look at my life or your life, could they draw any conclusions about the power of God? If someone were to look at my life or your life, what conclusions would they draw about the holiness of God? When I think about power, the place where I would see that lived out most clearly is in prayer. If someone could see what you pray, I think that would give them an indication of what you think about the power of God. Do you believe God can heal your two granddaughters of this disease that nobody else can heal? Like there's not a cure for it. Do you believe, are you praying? Is that a place where you're praying? Believing God to do that or not? What conclusions could be drawn about your convictions about God's power based on what you're praying? Do you pray for things that you can't, that are 
Let me say it this way. If we were to look at your prayer life, and again, don't hear this as guilt, it's just a question. Would we say you believe God is sovereign? Would we say that you believe God is all-powerful? Would we say that you believe God, nothing is impossible for him? Or would we say, I, I, don't, I don't see that based on the things that you're praying about. You pray about things that are small. You don't pray about anything that's large. You pray about things that don't matter deeply to you if they work, if they go one way or the other. The things that are, that you are, that are deep issues for you. The things that you're really concerned about. Those things don't necessarily come before the Lord when you think about prayer. What about holiness? When I think about holiness, I think about our lifestyle. Now, I, I don't want you to hear holiness in this kind of narrow, miserly kind of a life. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was considered a glutton and a drunkard. He never sinned. And yet his lifestyle was robust and full. He came that we would have life and have it abundantly. Sometimes when we hear holiness, we think of all the things that we can't do. We think of a list of no's. When you look at Jesus' life, that's not what his life is characterized by, although he was the holiest person who ever lived. Again, he, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he never sinned. And the people who knew him, the charges that they laid against him were that he was a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So there's a, don't hear holiness again as this very restrictive and small and stingy life where you're constantly worried about getting dirt on your shoe. That's not it at all. The holiness of God absolutely has to do with being separated from sin. But there's a, there's a way of doing that and a way of living that way. That, again, that's not, it's not small and miserly. It, it's, not, it's not Scrooge when it comes to your heart. There's a fullness and a, and, and a depth and a richness Again, particularly when you look at Jesus, I think it's when it comes to holiness. When Jesus is talking about John the Baptist to this group of people who are criticizing him, he says, John basically was like a funeral, and you didn't follow him. I'm kind of like a wedding, and you're not following me either. And for us, as followers of Jesus, we're more like the wedding than the funeral, if you can think about it that way, if that paints a picture for you of what holiness looks like in the kingdom of God. When we look at your life, or people look at my life, can they draw conclusions about the holiness of God? What he values and what he doesn't. How he values people and what it looks like to pursue them or to love them or to engage with people, even people who are tax collectors and sinners. Again, I don't want you to hear any of that as guilt. It absolutely can kill you, crush you. And guilt's a terrible motivator. It's not, not looking for perfection here at all. It's just a question. If people look at us, what conclusions can they draw about him? Recognizing that the Holy Spirit lives within you. So it's not about you trying harder at all. It's not about you hitting the marks and checking the boxes. It's about a recognition that he lives within you. And so what does it look like to allow the one who lives within you to be expressed through you? And that points to him. What does it look like for you to walk in the spirit on a daily basis to say, God, I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me, direct me, the things that I say and the things that I do. God, it makes me super nervous to pray for people who are sick. I know in my head that you can heal them. My experience is you heal some and you don't heal some. And that makes me feel bad. It makes me feel bad for the people who don't get healed immediately. 
And so my tendency would be to pull back from that. But I want to believe that you're powerful and that you're good and that you can do that. In my own body, I have this chronic condition. I don't, but I'm saying I have this chronic condition. And God, I'm tired of praying for it to be. And so I quit. I quit because it had been a, a month or a year or three years and nothing changed. God, I want to believe that you're powerful. And so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do that. God, when I look at our city and I see it broken in so many ways, I think it would be a whole lot easier just to burn it down and start over. But I want to pray that in our schools, in Marietta City schools, where white people graduate at a rate so much greater than black people, so much greater than a rate of Hispanic people, I want to pray that you can fix that. I don't see how you do that from where I am. But I want to believe that you're powerful enough to do that. God, I look at the addiction rate in our city. I want to believe that you're strong enough to set people free from alcohol and pornography and opioids. God, I look at the greed in our city. I want to believe that you're powerful enough to set people free from that, whatever they are. If we were to look at your prayer life, is God powerful enough? Are you asking him to do those things? And don't think that in order to ask him to do those things, you have to have all these feelings. And if you don't have all these feelings, then you don't have faith. Praying itself oftentimes is an act of trust and faith. And continuing to pray, particularly when you feel like you're not seeing results. I want to strongly encourage you in that direction. The Holy Spirit will help you pray. Romans 8, that's one of the things that he does. He intercedes on our behalf. I want to encourage you in your prayer life to expand a little bit. What do you want to see happen in your heart, in your home, and in your city? What do you want to see? Can you trust him to do those things? In terms of your interactions with others, again, it's, it's not about you and how, whether you can walk the tightrope of sinless perfection. You can't, so don't try. It's the Holy Spirit who lives within you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he produces within you, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Are you allowing those things to be expressed in your interactions with others? That's what holiness looks like. When somebody wrongs you, are you saying, God, I need grace to forgive them? That's what holiness looks like. All of those things, again, it's not about how hard you can try or how good you can be, but allowing the spirit that lives within you to express the character and nature of Jesus through you, his power and his holiness. I ran long. One, I don't have time. So um, we'll do this. We're going to take communion, and uh, we're going to do it this way at Stonebridge. Everyone is welcome to take communion. I certainly don't want you to feel like you're pressured to if your heart is not in a spot where you feel like this would be uh, authentic to your relationship with the Lord. Then please don't feel any pressure uh, to take communion. But everyone is welcome regardless of your church affiliation. You'll come forward a row at a time and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. And then we also have gluten-free communion that will remain here on this uh, table if you need that. Uh, Bo is going to come up and sing. And during that first song, I just want you all to sit and just let him sing. And we'll have a slide up on the screen uh, with a, a verse from Romans that you can meditate on uh, as you think about communion. You may want to think about some of the things that, that uh, I shared or you might not. Doesn't doesn't hurt my feelings one way or the other. I just want you to engage with the Lord during these few minutes. After this first song, then Bo will say, "Y'all can come forward and take communion 
and you can do that. Uh, we'll have some of our ministry teams in the corners. One of the things that we like to do when we uh, take communion is also pray for physical healing. Uh, Jesus died, one of the, our sins, and another one of the benefits is that he heals our diseases. And so it's what we talked about, this whole idea that God is powerful. And so we want to give him an opportunity to work uh, in our bodies. And we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on, but uh, we would particularly love to pray with any of you uh, who are sick this morning, whether that's something uh, acute or whether it's something chronic. We would love the opportunity to pray with you about that. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then Bo's going to sing. And as he does, again, I want you to have the freedom to meditate um, before the Lord. So, Holy Spirit, I pray you would come. Again, and draw our attention to the cross. I pray for every man and woman in this room. As we think about the cross, we would recognize the depth of love that you have for each one of us, individually and personally. there's anything in our life that would hinder us receiving that love, would you bring that to our minds as we sit here quietly? And something may run through your head, a relationship that's broken or something that's been done or left undone. I'd encourage you to grab onto that and deal with it really quickly. God, I confess whatever that is. Forgive me. God, I pray as we think about this idea of representing you. Again, I pray nobody would hear that as a burden upon their life. The blessings of the new covenant the Israelites did not enjoy is your spirit within us. What was external for them is internal for us. We're so thankful that you've written your law upon our hearts. We're so thankful that you live within us and move us to obedience and faithfulness. So I got, so God, I pray for each man and woman in this room. Again, as we meditate on the cross, we would recognize one of the benefits of your death and resurrection and ascension into heaven is that you pour your spirit out upon your people. You said it was better for us if you went to heaven because you would send another one. take up residence within us. So God, I pray for those of us who struggle around the the, the truth, the reality that you're a powerful God. We get that intellectually, but our life does not reflect the fact that we serve a God who is sovereign over all other gods, that we serve a God who is all-powerful, that we serve a God has triumphed over sin and Satan and sickness and death. God, in death, would you stir within us faith in you as the all-powerful one, the Lord Almighty. God, I pray for those of us who are struggle with the concept of your holiness, maybe for us, a, a truth, and it is true, you're our Father, and we have this very tender and personal relationship with you at times maybe becomes over familiar and casual would you remind us of your holiness 
this morning. God, I pray that you would stir within us a sense of awe and reverence. Purity and righteousness. We're not looking to be legalists at all. But we absolutely want to flee from all known sin in our life. God, I pray for the men and women in this room that we would be marked by power. Not that people think we're great, God, at pointing to you, glorifying you. And God, that we would be marked by holiness. A full and a deep and a rich sense of life. Jesus' name. Y'all can just take a few minutes before the Lord and then we'll take communion.